The Gospel reading this morning is from the second half of John chapter 21. If you'd like to turn there or listen as you will. Um, Chapter 21, verse 15. The word of the Lord. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, Follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. God's word. I'm glad to be with you all one more time. Uh, I'm also glad that Kevin will be back, Pastor Sherritt will be back, uh, not for my sake, uh, but for yours. Uh, he seems to be well. We corresponded uh, yesterday or the day before. I had listened to one of his sermons, and I told him that I was grateful to God that he is here. I listened to a sermon that he preached from uh, Luke chapter 7, the parable of the two debtors, the woman who had lived in sin in that town uh, for a long time, the prostitute who comes to the dinner where Jesus is at Simon's house. It was, uh, it's a favorite passage of mine. Wonderful message. I'm glad for you all. Very, very glad. It's an answer to many prayers. Uh, you all have heard it said uh, that, insan- that the de- a definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results, right? Uh, anybody know who said that? Or who it's attributed to? 
Albert Einstein, right? A pretty smart guy. Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results is insanity. When you're in a trial or in falling into sin, there's a kind of insanity that creeps in. We deny things that we know are true. We let doubt in. We pursue other hopes. We go fishing. We go fishing in hopes that it's going to give us life when it never gave us life before. And we do it again and again. We lose contact and sight with reality, with what is really real, which is the Lord, the Lord who made all things. We lose contact with him and we make choices and then we live in something of an unreal place. How do we find our way out? How do we find our way through trial? How do we, how do we get from where do I stand now to a realized relationship with the resurrected Christ. One thing that we learned last week was you throw yourself back into the sea and you run, you run to Jesus, you swim to Jesus. That was a really mixed metaphor, <laughs> sorry. Uh, you do whatever you have to do to get back into community and contact with Jesus, because it is better to entrust yourself to God than to try to figure it out. Trying to figure it out is insanity. You're not going to figure it out. You're not going to be able to resolve it. You're not going to be able to deal with your own sin. You've got to run back to God. Well, there's many things that we might find in Scripture about how restoration, how uh, finding health and life again with God. There's many places that we might turn, but we're sticking with Peter. Um, Let me make a comment. I think I've said this already. I am so thankful for Peter, and I'm so thankful for God's preserving this horrible life story. There are embarrassing things about his life that are recorded in scripture. I I hope that that gives each of you some courage and some hope that our lives, as real as they are, are known to God. And if God can do what he does with Peter, what will he do with you? What will he do with you? I have been so encouraged in dark places in my life by reflecting on Peter's life. Peter doesn't just get better and, like we said last week, get to sit in the back seat in church, the back back pew. Peter doesn't have to join another church. Peter ends up being elevated in such a way that he actually leads the church. You know, right after this chapter, the next thing that you see is Peter being the leader of the church in the beginning of Acts. It's just extraordinary. But it isn't all up and up and up because then he stumbles big time around the, the, the mess with the Judaizers and he gets reprimanded publicly and it gets recorded also in Galatians 2. 
Eugene Peterson has written a book uh, about David, King David, uh, and he, uh, it's called uh, Leap Over a Wall, very, very good book. Uh, but he, he makes this comment about David's life. He says, David's life is not an ideal life, it is a real life. Peter's life, it's not an ideal life. It's a real life, and in it, be encouraged. That's just what our lives are like. So there's many things that we might look at to figure out or to gain insight. How do I get from uncertainty to assurance? How do I get from not knowing whether or not I'm forgiven to a place of usefulness and welcome with God. In this particular narrative, Jesus uses reminder. Reminder. I'd like to suggest to you that restoration is reminder. It comes by way of reminder. Reminder is the method or the tool that's used to bring it about. He means to restore Peter. And in a way that is a mystery. If we were gonna, if we were gonna figure out how will we do this thing, we wouldn't plan on trials. We avoid them. But God uses trials as a purifying moment in our lives. I suggested to you the first week that I was here that Peter is going to learn things in his sin that are going to make him a better shepherd. They're going to make him more useful to God. Because his sin and his Waywardness is exposed in a trial. And God makes use of it. I, that, that's a mystery. That's a mystery. I think it's interesting that the writer to the Hebrews uses a similar idea in his encouragements about Jesus' incarnation. He says, because Jesus experienced everything, that we have experienced, he is able to help. Now, don't just put that on Jesus. Think about that for your own life. Because you have experienced difficult things, you are able to help. Paul says in the beginning of 2 Corinthians, we are, that he invites us to comfort one another with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted. That's only going to happen if you're being comforted and you're you're only going to experience being comforted as if you're in a mess. May God give us hope in all of those things. So let's look at what these reminders are. In the passage, the first, the first reminder is a reminder about love. Who do you love, Peter? The question is, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And then he says it two more times. Do you love me? Do you love me? 
Think with me for a minute. Who are these or what are these? It's not clear in the text what Jesus is referring to. It could be, he's speaking to a fisherman, remember? It could be that Jesus is saying, uh, do you love, Simon, do you love me more than these 153? Okay? For a person who loves his work, it totally could be a problem. It could certainly be a problem that you love your work more than you love Jesus. Part of the way that, that problem shows up is, is that your work gives you an immediate, if you do it well, your work gives you an immediate charge, an immediate approval. It's thin, but some of you work for that purpose, don't you? The chapter president in, in the InterVarsity Fellowship at Skidmore resigned a couple of weeks ago. And as part of the restoration, she asked if she could talk with me. That was a miracle. And she said to me yesterday, hmm. she said, I live for my work. She's an, a very, very accomplished fine art, fine art student. I live for my work. And I haven't done this job well, and I'm a mess. Wouldn't it be great to let God be God, God be your God, and not your work be your God? So maybe it's the fish. Maybe that's what Jesus is pointing to. Maybe Jesus is pointing to the friends, and he's saying, do you love me more than you love these, these, these guys? Or... Maybe he's saying, do you love me more than these guys love me? It could mean any of those things. You understand that. Do you love me more than these? Pick one or put them all in the same basket. It comes down to the, the same question. Jesus says, Peter, who is first? Who is first in your love? Is it people? Is it work? Or is it me? How big is your love, Peter? Now, Peter, as we just heard in, these, in the uh, Jeremiah passage, and we heard in the First Peter passage, First Peter, same guy, by the way, just so you know. I think that we all know that, but we may not be thinking about it. Peter is a pastor. If a pastor is loving his work more than he's loving God, there's going to be a mess. If a pastor is loving the people and seeking their approval more than he loves God, there's going to be a mess. I'd like to suggest that if a pastor doesn't love God more than his people love God, there might be a mess. He needs to be given over to God in a profound way. I mean, we all need to be. We all need to be. You might want to scratch that comparison. I didn't plan to say that. Whew. The first and second great commandment are to love the Lord your God with all of, with 
all that you've got. I heard, that, I heard a, uh, a campus guy say that. The first commandment is to love God with all that you've got, with your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. It's like both halves of your brain and your body too. Love him with all that you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. But if that first commandment is, is askew, everything becomes muddy. Everything becomes unmoored. Only by loving God first and with all that you've got do we have any hope of being givers. Otherwise, we will be takers. And your friends, if they're honest with you, will be able to tell you which you are. The first reminder. Jesus is, he is restoring Peter. He's not aiming to restore Peter. He's doing it. And the first thing that he reminds him of is what his love needs to be like. He's reminding him of his first love. Second thing that he's reminding him of is something about knowing. What does he need to know? This is his question. Who really knows you, Peter? I say that's the question. He doesn't actually say that anywhere. But Peter's answer is what tells us that that's what the question is. He says, you know that I love you. Now, I th- how many of you have ever heard a sermon from this passage? How many of you have heard 10 or more sermons from this passage? <laughs> okay, this is, a, this is a commonly preached from text. And virtually all scholars tend to sit down on trying to find the meaning of the text in the nouns and the verbs. The lamb and the sheep and the feeding are taking care. Okay, we'll come to that in a minute. But I want to suggest to you that that's not actually the heart of this reminder. The heart of this reminder is, you see, Jesus elicits from Peter. He draws out of Peter by way of his question. He draws out from him Peter's confession that being known is critical for sanity. Think of what Peter has just done. It's sort of an outrageous conversation. Peter has publicly denied knowing Jesus, being associated with him, being a friend of his. being a friend of his friends. (laughs) He's done it in public. And now Peter says to Jesus, you know that I love you. I mean, can't you see in my life how I've demonstrated it? I don't know what he means. Right? He cannot mean, look at how my life has demonstrated it. He cannot mean that. What he must mean is, is you know all things. Why are you asking me if I love you? You know. I might add, you know that I love you even though I don't even know if I love you myself. You know it, Jesus. I don't think that his loving Jesus becomes a credit 
It's not that. It's rather that he is simply saying in praise to Jesus, you know me. Jesus' reminder to him is about God's loving gaze. In Psalm 139, um, I think most of us, when we read Psalm 139, if you don't read it, read it this afternoon. Um, Most of us, when we read this psalm, we take a great deal of comfort and assurance from it, but some of it, depending upon where you are, whether you have swum back to Jesus or not, or you're standing apart from him, some of it is uncomfortable. You have laid your hand on me, he says, uh, the, the psalmist says. I think for some people, laying a hand on me is not a positive experience. You have to have a good relationship with the person for that to be a good experience. It can kind of go either way. But in this case, Peter, knowing that Jesus knows him thoroughly, is helpful to Peter. It reminds him. It's an invitation to rest and to thrive with God's hand on you. To thrive in a place where you're known by God. At the risk of being pedantic, I'm going to just name the problem. He knows you. (laughs) He knows the dark stuff too. He knows everything about you. Hebrews 2 tells us that he knows everything about you and yet he is, Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother or sister. When we know things about one another, we disassociate often. Later in Hebrews, God says, in spite of what everybody's like in Israel, he says, It says that God is not ashamed to be called their God. This is an extraordinary thing. This is essential for living a happy life with God. Is to know that he knows you thoroughly and accepts and welcomes you. Another reminder. So the first is about who do you love? Who knows you is the second. The third, I'm going to put the word do next to it, and we're going to go back to these these three verbs, feed and take care of and feed again. I think that the reminder to Peter is a question, whose mission matters to you? Peter. Peter. Whose mission matters to you? If anything, the emphasis before was about being, being known by God, being loved by God and loving him in return. Now it's about doing. Do the work of a pastor. Do the work of a leader. Do the work that your gifts, that your gifts invite you to do. 
In this case, feed my lambs. The need, even if Peter totally tanks and walks away from God, the need for the lambs to be fed remains. And God's restoration is meant to bring you back into the work and for the work to be done. His reminder corrects a life of uh, distraction in Peter. If you go back and you were to read through the narratives around Peter, Peter is a remarkably self-absorbed guy. Okay, that's not really fair. He's self-absorbed just like all of us, but it's written about him in scripture. (laughs) Aren't you glad that it's not written about you in scripture? (laughs) The correction is, it's, the correction is, Jesus says, it's my mission that matters, and I'm inviting you into it. But you can't come in and keep doing your own thing. You can't tell me when I'm, what, 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 you can't tell me that I shouldn't go to the cross. <laughs> you can't just interrupt and say, you can't wash me. You've got to get on board with what I'm doing, Peter. Do to feed, to take care, to feed. To do the work of ministry is what happens in all of our lives when we are in, when we're getting the B part. <laughs> in other words, when we understand and our lives are moved with gratitude for forgiveness. We want to tell people about it. We want to demonstrate generosity in our life. It affects us. And it propels the mission of the church. A fourth reminder. A reminder about the future. Who's future, Peter, is the question. If it is our future to determine, and many of us live that way, don't we? Don't we? We live as if we are the agents that command and shape our own future. We do it because we don't want a future like is predicted for Peter. Who wants that? When you were younger, you dressed yourself. Yeah, that was good. Um, And went where you wanted. It's like the ideal of the human life. Freedom. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and you will be crucified. And tradition holds that he was crucified upside down. And then Jesus says, follow me. What's got to happen for that reminder to be good? We can't can't gloss over that. He's got 
some bad days ahead of him. Jesus tells him about them and then says, hey, come follow me. The description of the future for Peter is terrifying. Yet, it is also God-honoring. I believe it's concerning Saul, who becomes Paul, and God tells Cornelius that Paul needs to learn how much he must suffer for my sake. Be honest, folks. That is not an easy word to hear. But if you trusted God with your future, if you gave up on your capacity to determine and manage your life, if I did it, then I can go into the future knowing that he knows me. And I can go in with my whole heart. You know, he has um, a lot of time ahead of him. After this writing, after this moment, after this narrative, he has at least three decades of fruitful, God-honoring ministry ahead of him. For which I am confident Peter has a great deal of gratitude. It's interesting to me that in a lot of uh, contemporary movies, this theme about the uncertainty of the future and wanting to change the future shows up all the time. Sometimes in a light way, like um, in Star Trek and in Back to the Future, both of these movies talk about the danger of uh, interrupting the space-time continuum. Uh, it'll ruin everybody's life, basically, is the idea. Most of us don't get a glimpse of the future like Peter has. We simply trust God for the future. I would encourage you, though, to ask God to help you to trust him with his future for your life. Not just the future of your wishes. We will pick certain passages that tell us that the future is rosy. If you just look around you, you know that it isn't. It isn't. What will it mean to trust God in hardship? I thought of an image uh, after I read this a uh, while ago. I thought the secret of Peter's future is out. And the image that came to my mind was, the cat's out of the bag. <laughs> and then I thought, what an interesting turn of phrase. The cat's out of the bag. That feels like, I used to have cats, it feels like chaos is going to erupt, right? The cat doesn't want to be in the bag, and it gets out, and it's crazy. Maybe that's what it would be like if you knew the future. A fifth reminder. 
Jewel are probably going to ask me a lot of questions later. This is only one place where we see a person being restored, and it's just what's happening to Peter. I've got some questions for you in a moment. Um, but the fifth reminder is about lordship. Verses 20 to 23. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered in a distinctly un-Jesus kind of a comment. It's almost feeling like it's sarcastic. He says, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Um, John Updike wrote a series of novels about a young man named Rabbit. And um, I read this, I read the book after I had read uh, a shorter book by Jack Miller. I don't know if any of you know Jack Miller's name. He's, uh, he was a key person in the OPC, Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and then he was a key person in the PCA, and then he died um, heart attack. But the image that, uh, that Updike uses is of these two ministers who are trying to uh, help Rabbit. Rabbit is a wayward young man, and uh, one of the ministers is Episcopalian, and one of them is Lutheran. And um, sounds like I'm about to tell you a joke. I'm not. Um, uh, they don't walk into a bar. Uh, so uh, the, um, the Episcopal minister, they're, they're both trying to help Rabbit. And the Episcopal minister is a very polite guy who's just trying to be Rabbit's friend. And he goes around and he's sort of fiddling with one part of Rabbit's life, then another part of Rabbit's life, trying to make the way a little bit easier for Rabbit, gently telling him he shouldn't be sleeping with this girl. He's not... He's not straightforward. He's kind of a coward. And the, uh, the Lutheran pastor is approached by the Episcopal minister. The Episcopal minister is wringing his hand saying, what do we do, what do we do? And the Lutheran pastor says, your job is not to go about stirring the pot and fiddling around in people's lives. Your job is to go into your closet and lock yourself in in prayer and when you come out, to be full of Christ, to burn people with your love for God. That's a paraphrase. Um, the point is, is that Peter's life is not supposed to be one of meddling in John's life. John's future is with Jesus. Jesus and John have got a thing that they're going to work out. Peter and, Peter and Jesus have a thing that they're going to work out. Stop worrying about others, Peter. Keep your eyes on Jesus, not on others. Part of what it means to give God what is his due is give him room to work in another person's life and don't be the one who's in there micromanaging. Micromanagement and meddling is no one's calling. Okay, it's no one's calling. Your calling is to follow Christ. Where are you, friends?
Where are you in that place of, I don't know where I stand and I'm enjoying fellowship with Christ? Where are you? About what do you experience God reminding you? What is he persistently reminding you of? In that, what do you think he's inviting you to do? I will tell you, friends, there is no engagement that God initiates with us that is not meant to elicit a response from us. He makes himself known to us so that we will worship him. He forgives us of our sins that we might be grateful and free. There's always a response that he's looking for from you. What is he reminding you about? And perhaps another question is, turn it a little bit sideways, what is it that you yet need to remember? This is Peter's stuff. This may be similar things for you. What is pressing on your heart right now? What thought just came to you? I encourage you uh, to take that back to God. Spend some time praying this afternoon, reflecting. Make it with God first. Talk with someone else as you need. But begin with God. He wants to know you. He does know you, but he wants you to enter into that and experience it so that you have a free and fruitful life for his sake. Let's pray. I am confident, Lord God, that what you have begun in each one of our lives, you will bring to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. We ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, use these passages and uh, whatever it is that you're laying on each of our hearts now and may we be responsive to you and not avoid you and not say tomorrow, but say today. We trust you that your intentions for us are good. We trust you that your purposes are perfect and that you will bring great good from our repentance and restoration. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.